Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1230. How many lies before you belong for the lie, part three. This is being recorded on March 2nd of the year 2022. Before getting into the main body of the program, three links very quickly. These are at the top of each written for the record description, basically setting forth the documentation for the For the Record programs, and uh, also at the top of each Food for Thought post at the left-hand side of the front page of the SpitfireList.com website. One of those links will enable you to subscribe to the comments, most of which are made by our brilliant contributing editor, Tara Fractal, some by other people. Another link will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts for For the Record that are being made by Sister Station WFMU. Increasingly, podcasts are a chosen uh, media of consumption for people in this country in the year 2022. And so if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, then click on that link and the Sister Station WFMU is providing those podcasts. The third link will enable you to obtain the 32 gigabyte flash drive with uh, basically almost all of my 43 years on the air's work, basically everything on the SpitfireList.com website, including a mini library of old anti-fascist books on the easy to download PDF files. I get no money whatsoever from this, and increasingly, uh, I couldn't be more pessimistic. Uh, I think that uh, it is a responsibility of people to obtain that and to make themselves, in so doing, a repository for uh, <laughs> whatever use the future may make of this, and I am not optimistic. By the way, all of the programs that I have done on the Oswald Institute of Virology series uh, are available on the on the flash drive. Again, and it's available for a very modest fee. I get no money from it. And the, it is tax deductible if you itemize your deductions. Now, uh, the title of the program comes from the brilliant late com- political comedian Mort Saul, who in his autobiography Heartland in 1976 observed, quote, how many lies before you belong to the lie? In other words, how many lies can you allow yourself to believe before you belong to the lie? Saul, as many know, was one of Jim Garrison's investigators in New Orleans investigating the assassination of JFK. Uh, we're going to continue in this program with... Uh, analysis of and discussion of war in Ukraine will be taking a uh, different presentation, my guess is, than most of what you have been hearing. And uh, in this series that I'm doing, it is worth noting a number of things. One of those is one of the elements of genius of Adolf Hitler when he observed uh, talking about the big lie and its power, and marketability, Hitler observed in Mein Kampf, quote, most people tell little lies. They would be ashamed to tell big ones. They would never credit others with such great impudence as the complete reversal of facts. 
Even explanations would long leave them in doubt and hesitation, as any trifling detail would dispose them to accept the thing as true. All good liars know this, and therefore stop at nothing to achieve this end. It is uh, also worth bearing in mind an old Turkish proverb. <laughs> he who tells the truth gets chased out of nine villages, and I've been chased out of my share. Uh, in this series, as well as in this program, I'm going to be presenting information that uh, is from open sources. I am not an investigative reporter. Uh, I am a researcher and an archivist, and everything I have done for the better part of half a century is from open sources. I refer to myself as a journalistic step-up transformer. I pick information that is already on the public record and do what little I can to make it more visible. Everything in this series has already been on the For the Record Airwaves. It is archived on the SpitfireList.com website and, by the way, on the 32-gigabyte flash drive. Uh, all of it is from open sources. None of this is a secret. This is uh, the material I am presenting in this series is a composite of information that I have presented before uh, about not only the uh, ascent of the OUNB successor organizations to power in Ukraine, where they control uh, the military intelligence and police establishments, as well as the educational institution. They are in effective control of what is going on in Ukraine. And uh, one of the things that has struck me about not just the war, but the attendant, uh, quote, coverage, unquote, note the quotes, is the extent to which not only is this, in a very real way, the triumph of Hitler, but it represents the becoming the lie. In other words, how many lies before you belong to the lie? It, it, it represents the belonging to the lie of this society, the EU, most of the world, and uh, probably a great many of you who listen on the radio. Uh, it is remarkable to me to watch documented historical fact going down what George Orwell referred to as the memory hole in his famous novel, 1984. Orwell observed in 1946 that, quote, political language is designed to make lies sound truthful, murder respectable, and to give the appearance of solidity to pure wind. And that is what is going on in connection with this. Uh, I am uh, more than a little frustrated at uh, the relative inability to simply learn what is going on militarily with regard to the actual uh, military progress or events in the war. So much of it is propagandized. Uh, it is 
well, again, frustrating would be a polite word. I'd use stronger language, but this is on the air. If I were going to give my candid opinion, I would have to reach into the foulest backwaters of my vocabulary. Uh, one of the things that strikes me, I'm going to ruminate a little bit about the war itself, which I think is intended as a European redux of the war in Afghanistan, but I think the desired aim in the West is not only a Russian military defeat, which might actually happen, I think, but is intended to force a removal of Vladimir Putin. I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later. It is uh, something that has been impressing itself on me that the war itself as an event and the attendant coverage represents something of an intellectual, historical, and political prism through which those who are witnessing this uh, from the Ministry of Truth uh, and that is an awful lot of people, most people in Europe, most people in the U.S., and an awful lot of the rest of the people around the world. They are becoming a manifestation of something that will be a central element in the discussion this evening, and perhaps we'll have to see how much time we have, but perhaps in the next program as well. And that is the Ukrainian Institute for national memory. It is a truly Orwellian term, and it is a an institute that was set up uh, in Ukraine, and it has been under the guidance of a guy named Vladimir Vietro- Volodymyr Vietrovich. And what it is, uh, it is taking the files of the old KGB and then uh, what became the Ukrainian Intelligence Service, and it is recasting the history of Ukraine during World War II in a completely different fashion. It is casting uh, not only the OUN and UPA Nazi collaborationist organizations as good guys and as, uh, quote, freedom fighters, unquote, but the laws that have been instituted in Ukraine are basically such that if you tell the truth, they're called, they are derived from the lustration laws, it's L-U-S-T-R-A-T-I-O-N, uh, ostensibly and primarily designed to uh, combat corruption in that very corrupt country. Uh, the lustration laws have made it illegal to tell the truth about the OUN and the UPA, which were Nazi collaborationist organizations in World War II. And the belonging to the lie, which I think an awful lot of individuals and institutions uh, either have become or are becoming as this political, intellectual, and historical prism of the war itself and the appendant coverage becomes something of uh, almost an alchemical manifestation of the Institute for Historical Memory. And what we are witnessing is uh, really a very real triumph of Hitler on the global stage as uh, things are being completely 
stood on their end. One would never know, really, from the coverage of the war that Putin's stated goal of the war denazification is not only relevant, very relevant, but in its principle just. Uh, I don't know that the war was not a mistake. It's tough to say. I am convinced that Putin was lured into the war uh, probably by either a looming attack and attempt to recapture Lukansk and Donetsk or a feint in that direction, not unlike uh, the way Zbigniew Brzezinski's covert operation lured the Soviet Union into Afghanistan, and not unlike the way that the U.S. ambassador to Iraq, April Glaspie, and oil companies in the U.S. Uh, basically faked Saddam Hussein into invading Kuwait and then blasted him. I suspect something very different, very similar, I should say, was done uh, vis-a-vis the invasion of Ukraine. It does not appear to me to be a particularly uh, well-scoped-out adventure from a military standpoint, and certainly politically. Uh, it, it certainly is, I do not think, going to work out well for uh, Vladimir Putin. I think that is one of the major goals. But his stated goal of demalsification is absolutely valid and in principle just. Again, I think he was lured into a trap, and I think in many ways this may be a misadventure. I think it uh, is in many ways ill-advised, although very possibly unavoidable. It may be that the thinking on the part of Vladimir Putin was, well, if they militarily reconquer uh, Lukansk and Donetsk, uh, then sooner or later we're going to have to fight them, and uh, NATO will indeed go, uh, Ukraine rather, will indeed go into NATO. Uh, this is a grotesque manifestation, and perhaps uh, before we get into, well, I, you know, let, me, let me finish ruminating about the war itself. I'm, I'm sure we'll go into our next program with regard to the information about the Institute of National Memory and how the war itself and attendant coverage is again something of a, a prism or an alchemical, a, a philosopher's stone from alchemy to transform much of the world, including especially the USA, an awful lot of the people and institutions in it, into uh, a perverted fascist revision of reality. Again, uh, the war itself and attendant coverage as a manifestation of the Institute of National Memory is the underlying theme here. Uh, if, in fact, uh, the influx of anti-armor missiles and man pads, that is to say, shoulder-fired anti-aircraft weapons like Stinger missiles, uh, are able to inflict enough damage on uh, the Soviet, the Soviet there you go, uh, the Russian forces, uh, and if that indeed uh, badly degrades the Russian military, stalls it, perhaps even defeats it, uh, in combination with economic dislocation from the sanctions, that could lead to the uh, political downfall of Vladimir Putin. I think that is what is intended. I think this is intended as, a again, a European manifestation of the Afghanistan war. Uh, what happens if, in fact, Putin does get... Uh, destroyed from a power standpoint, uh, 
certainly I think the EU and U.S. will try to flood Ukraine and it will become uh, a uh, free market, neoliberal capitalist um, <laughs> manifestation. At least that is what they want. Something to bear in mind is that there is a very strong right-wing slash ultra-nationalist slash fascist component in Russia, the most visible, though not necessarily the most important uh, individual of which is Vladimir Zhirinovsky, who has been financed by Gerhard Frey, the German fascist, uh, whose Deutsche National Zeitung and Salatin Zeitung was the vehicle in which General Edwin Walker revealed one day after JFK was killed that Lee Harvey Oswald had fired at him on April 10th of 1963. That was the first casting of Oswald as the culprit, and again, it was in the Deutsche National Zeitung and Sovaten Zeitung, that was the paper of Gerhard Frey, the main financial backer of Vladimir Zhirinovsky. In the book Imperium by Francis Parker Yockey, one of the most important post-World War II figures, although he was actually working on behalf of the right, too, uh, briefly. Uh, the, the best book about that, the definitive work about that, is by the late, brilliant Kevin Coogan. It is called Francis Parker, uh, it's called Dreamer of the Day, Francis Parker Yaki and the Post-War Fascist International. And Yaki envisioned what he called his Imperium being a pan-European fascist slash Nazi state, including a fascist slash Nazi Russia opposed to the U.S. and the Jews. Um, if something like that comes out of what, uh, for lack of a better term, one might call a Weimar Russia, a Russia that has been militarily, diplomatically, and economically humiliated, is a possibility to, to take very seriously. Just think of all those nuclear weapons at the... the Disposal of a Nazi, that is something to think about. Could be uh, vis-a-vis what I believe are the war aims of the West in connection with luring Putin into a trap. It could be a very good example of be careful what you wish for, you might get it. Uh, turning now to uh, the actual subject material, uh, <laughs> uh, one of my favorite expressions uh, comes from Nietzsche when he observed that, quote, a joke is the epigram on the death of a feeling. And the flatulent stupidity being manifested in the U.S. and elsewhere about the war was uh, embodied when uh, Hollywood luminary Ashton Kutcher, K-U-T-C-H-E-R, uh, tweeted support for Ukraine. Uh, this from CNN, the 26th of 2022. Ashton Kutcher tweets support for Ukraine, home country of wife Mila Kunis. That's K-U-N-I-S. It's by Jay Croft from CNN. Mila Kunis also is a uh, noted Hollywood actor, and she is a Jewish native of Ukraine. And this uh, article reads partially, Celebrities and political figures have been voicing support for Ukraine since Russia invaded this week. Now comes another famous face with a personal connection to the besieged nation, actor Ashton Kutcher. I stand with Ukraine, the star tweeted late Friday. Uh, 
One of the things, very quickly, uh, fascism is corporatism, as how Mussolini uh, explained the term, il fascismo e il corporatismo. Fascism is corporatism. He called his system the corporate state. Hitler then uh, introduced elements of racism, anti-Semitism, and eugenics, and that became Nazism. But at a psychosocial level, uh, fascism could be thought of as bundle think. Uh, the symbol of fascism is the Foscus, the symbol of the Roman Republic. It is a bundle of sticks that are uh, bound together by leather with an axe head. And bundle think is at a psychosocial level the manifestation of fascism. I think it has much in common with uh, what one sees at rock concerts, at sporting events, in a riot. Uh, people are acting as part of uh, the bundle. In particular, when they get liquored up on uh, the local sports franchise, wins a championship, and everybody you know, gets uh, drunk or uh, inebriated on whatever, and it's you go Lakers, or whatever. Uh, I see, I'm seeing a lot of that in connection with this, and nobody is exemplifying a more mindless bundle think than Ashton Kutcher. Again, he says, I stand with Ukraine, the star tweeted late Friday. And again, he is married to Ukrainian Jewish native Mila Kunis. Uh, Jumping back almost nine years from the Observer of February 7th of 2013, we've covered this uh, before. This is by Drew Grant, G-R-A-N-T. Ukrainian anti-Semitism and Mila Kunis, complicated by Facebook and dictionaries. Again, this is from uh, February of 2013. A member of the Ukrainian parliament from the far-right Svoboda Party, Igor Miroshnichenko, M-I-R-O-S-V-H-N-I-C-A-P-N-K-O, smearingly proclaimed that Kunis was not a Ukrainian but a Zhidovka. That means basically dirty Jewess. I've also seen it translated as kike. This deeply hurtful slur for a Jew was an alarming gutter effort to inject Jew hatred into the acceptable bounds of mainstream Ukrainian discourse. Skipping down, the most disturbing aspect of the story was the reaction of the Ukrainian ministry, which claimed that there is nothing wrong with calling Kunis the female version of a dirty Jew, unquote, because the word is in their dictionary. Great stuff. Uh, again, reading the first paragraph. A member of the Ukrainian parliament from the far-right Svoboda party, Igor Moroshnichenko, sneeringly proclaimed that Mila Kunis was not Ukrainian, but a Zhidovka. This deeply hurtful slur for a Jew was an alarming gutter effort to inject Jew hatred into the acceptable bounds of mainstream Ukrainian discourse. And the uh, bundlethink manifester Ashton Kutcher may stand with Ukraine. One wonders uh, what uh, Igor Moroshnichenko would think when he, in a biblical sense, lays down with his wife. The quote, Zhidovka, unquote. By the way, I have nothing against Mila Kunis. But this is an example. And again, uh, Moroshnichenko is from the Svoboda Party. Uh, there is a lot of, you know, a lot of grotesque discussion going on, and there is all the uh, discussion of how Russia has violated Ukraine's national sovereignty. Uh, the Maidan coup in 20 early 2014, followed a failed attempt to woo Ukraine into the EU. Paul Manafort, uh, a right-wing U.S. operative, a member, by the way, of a key uh, 
lobbying slash law firm Black Manafort and Stone, founded by the Stone, that's Roger Stone, the uh, top aide to Donald Trump, now being investigated in connection with January 6th, casting uh, Paul Manafort, a man whom I have termed in past analyses. Lee Harvey Manafort as a Russian agent is grotesque, but it is at least original. He is nothing of the kind, and he was working with uh, a group of diplomats he called the Hopsburg Group, a term, the Hopsburg Group, to we to uh, basically uh, wean Ukraine into the EU. Uh, the EU association agreement was going to impose a uh, fierce degree of austerity on Ukraine. Uh, Russia then made a much better deal for uh, the Ukraine, and Yanukovych took that deal. It would have been much better for the people in Ukraine. He then was overthrown in a violent coup. There is abundant documentation of that. Uh, there was a phone call of Victoria Newland that was intercepted in which she talks about, can we glue this thing, unquote? There was a phone call that indicated that the Again, an intercepted phone call, the sniper fire that wounded and killed both police and uh, demonstrators came from buildings occupied by Svoboda, the same organization, one of whose MPs uh, characterized Mila Kunis as a Zhidovka, a dirty Jewess. Uh, Professor Ivan Kachanovsky has done a very exhaustive, detailed analysis of not only the trajectories of the bullets from the footage, but also of the testimony in the trials, and proved beyond a doubt that Svoboda was occupying the buildings from which the sniper fire came, and that basically the Maidan coup was a provocation. It was the overthrow of a democratically elected government, a violation of Ukraine's sovereignty. And the Ukrainian people would have been much better off under the Russian agreement than under the austerity-laden EU association agreement. That was why Yanukovych went for it. We're going to talk about uh, Mr. Zelensky as well. Uh, Watching him cast as some sort of hero slash martyr also makes me want to puke. as, as does, you know, the, the, the tearing of hair and beating of breasts, don't think for one minute that this war, as terrible as it is, isn't exactly what the U.S. wanted. It is exactly what Biden wanted. It is exactly what the EU wanted. They are loving every minute of it, and the bloodier it gets, the more they are going to love it. They are ready to fight to the last Ukrainian. As far as... Uh, Zelensky, um, what would have been better for the Ukrainian people, for Ukraine to remain neutral and rule out an affiliation with NATO, which is what uh, Putin wanted, or what is going on now? It's a rhetorical question. It would have been a hell of a lot better for the people in Ukraine if the war was not going on. So for Zelensky to be elevated as some sort of hero on behalf of Ukraine is grotesque. It is the Hitlerian complete reversal of facts. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Zelensky One of the questions that has been posed is, uh, well, how could a fascist country have a Jewish 
president? Well, that is uh, a somewhat complex uh, answer, a question. Uh, Zelensky was a television star. He was a comedian. That had a lot to do with his public recognizability. Um, one of the things that uh, we are going to talk about, maybe later in this program, I think this is certainly the analysis of the Institute for Historical Review will certainly bleed over into the next program. But uh, we're going to talk about the Azov manifestation, not just the Azov battalion per se, but the overall manifestation of the Azov battalion. One of the things that we touched on last week was their civilian militia, the National Prigina Militia, that has police powers in 21 different uh, Ukrainian cities, along with the civilian militia of the... Uh, of Svoboda, which is called Combat 14, taken from the 14 words, a white supremacist battle cry, minted by David Lane of the Orbit, the American neo-Nazi group. The Azov-derived National Dravina Militia was named, basically, were awarded the job of being election monitors in the election in March of 2020 that elected uh, Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, yeah, his name was Vladimir Zelensky. I believe it was 2020, uh, maybe it was 2019. In any event, uh, the election in which Mr. Zelensky made his ascent, the election monitors were the Azov Battalion's National Militia from Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Liberty. They are the ultra-nationalist National Militia, street vigilantes with roots in the battle-tested Azov Battalion that emerged to defend Ukraine against Russia-backed separatists, but also was accused of possible war crimes and neo-Nazi sympathies. Yet despite the controversy surrounding it, the National Militia was granted permission by the Central Election Commission to officially monitor Ukraine's presidential election on March 31st. There were some superficial attempts at walking that back. There is no credible evidence that that happened. So the election monitors, when Zelensky was elected, were basically from the Azov Battalion. Uh, note again, he is a political figure that had a lot to do with his political ascent. Of course, that was in Ukraine. Nothing like that would ever happen in the U.S. Just imagine how silly that would be if uh, a television personality, say a reality TV star, got elected president. Well, that would never happen in the U.S., of course. <clears throat> uh, before we go back to, uh, well, I think the Azov Battalion and uh, some of the people in charge of the national security apparatus in Ukraine, we're taking a look. Remember again, uh, Ashton Kutcher saying, I stand with Ukraine when the member of Svoboda characterized his wife, Mila Kunis, as a British Jewess, unquote, and said she wasn't Ukrainian because she was Jewish. He is from uh, the Svoboda Party from Channel 4 News in the UK of March 5th of 2014. How the far right took top posts in Ukraine's power vacuum 
after the aforementioned uh, Maidan coup, which was a fundamental violation of Ukraine's sovereignty as a nation, and yet not a peep. How many lies before you belong to the lie? Again, from Channel 4 News of the UK, March 5th, 2014, how the far right took pop posts in Ukraine's power vacuum. Look how many of these ministerial positions are from Svoboda, whose MP characterized Ashton Kutcher's wife, Mila Kunis, as, quote, a dirty Jewess, unquote, and said she was not Ukrainian. The man facing down Putin's aggression as Secretary of the Ukrainian National Security and Defense Council is Andrei Parabui, P-A-R-U-B-I-Y. He oversees national security for the nation, having previously served as security commandant during the anti-government protests in Kiev. Parabui was the founder of the Social National Party of Ukraine, a fascist party styled on Hitler's Nazis with membership restricted to ethnic Ukrainians. The Social National Party would go on to become Svoboda, the far-right nationalist party whose leader Ole Pionovuk was one of the three most high-profile leaders of the Euromaidan protests, negotiating directly with the Yanukovych regime. Overseeing the armed forces alongside Parabui as the Deputy Secretary of National Security is Dmitry Yarosh, the leader of the right sector, a group of hardline nationalist street fighters who previously boasted they were ready for armed struggle to free Ukraine. The deputy, and by the way, uh, uh, he is now uh, an advisor to the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian armed forces, that is to say, Dmitry Garov, the former leader of Sector, which is the political front for the final incarnation of the UPA. Continuing with the Channel 4 article. The new Deputy Prime Minister, Alexander Sitch, S-Y-C-H, is a member of the far-right Svoboda Party as well, which the World Jewish Congress called on the EU to consider banning last year, along with Greece's Golden Dawn. The party, which has long called for a national revolution in Ukraine, has endured a long march from relative obscurity in the early 1990s. Their declaration that Ukraine is controlled by a, quote, Muscovite Jewish mafia, unquote, has raised fears for the safety of the country's Jewish population. Svoboda now controls the Ecology and Agricultural Ministry with Andrei Mokinik, M-O-K-H-N-Y-K, the deputy head of Svoboda running Ecology, and Ihor Shvaika, S-H-V-A-I-K-A, as Agriculture Minister. Associate Professor at Lund University in Sweden, Per Anders Rudling, an expert on Ukrainian extremists, told Channel 4 News that there are other ministers who are also closely in the orbit of Svoboda. Quote, Two weeks ago, I could never have predicted this. A neo-fascist party like Svoboda getting the deputy prime minister position is news in its own right. There are seven ministers with links to the extreme right now. It began with Svoboda getting 10% of the vote in the last election. It is certainly a concern in the long run. Svoboda member Ole Maknitsky is now acting prosecutor general. The initial actions of the interim government have included forcing making Ukrainian the only official language of the nation and making and making moves to remove a law which forbids, quote, excusing the crimes of fascism, unquote. Uh, 
the attempts by that government to make Ukrainian the only language and uh, therefore banning Russian had much to do with the secession of the breakaway provinces of Lukansk and Donetsk and Crimea's uh, vote to secede as well. Those people speak primarily Russian. And it would be like if Mexico reoccupied Southern California, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas, and banned English. How do you think people there would react? But that is those. That is the party that uh, came to power in the interim government, and one of whose MPs characterized Mila Kunis as a British Jewess. Not that that would apparently bother uh, half a man, Ashton Kutcher, too much. Uh, worth noting too. Uh, anti-Semitism. We're going to come back to this. Uh, an article in news.au.com from Australia by Charles Miranda. MH17, oh, something I should mention too in, in regard to the war news. Uh, there's certainly uh, the uh, Maidan government and the OUNB successor organizations in charge of national security affairs and the police in Ukraine are uh, adept at establishing or, or initiating provocations. Undoubtedly, at least some of what we have heard and or will hear is provocation, but the news will not cover it. Exemplifying that, the following, again, from news.au.com blog, out of Australia, from June 7th of 2016, by Charles Miranda, MH17 investigators reveal an exhaust of a Russian-built book Buk BUK missile was found at the crash site. This is about the downing of uh, Malaysian Airlines flight MH17. Uh, that has been blamed on Russia. Uh, the late Robert Perry of Consortium News did a detailed analysis of that and indicated that, in fact, the missile was fired by Ukrainian forces uh, very possibly uh, in order to produce a publication, or maybe because they drank too much. Who knows? But it does not appear that Russians fired that. However, here is the official version. Hedvitz released Ukraine's former top SBU, that's their intelligence service, security services official, Vasil Vovk, V-A-S-Y-L, last name V-O-V-K, who until June last year was the country's chief investigator on the multinational probe, said he knew who was responsible, but conceded it was not conclusive. Quote, I am confident that this missile system was delivered from the territory of the Russian Federation with a high-skilled crew, most likely a crew of well-trained officers, of course, from Russian territory. Well, give you a better idea of uh, the... Uh, sort of uh, creature that Vasil Volk is from the Jewish Chronicle of May 11th of 2017 by Sam Sokol, S-O-K-O-L. Ukrainian general calls for destruction of Jews, unquote. Quote, I'm telling you one more time, go to hell, kikes, unquote, wrote the senior official officer one more time. I'm telling you one more time, go to hell, kikes, wrote the senior officer affiliated to the intelligence services. In the latest of a series of highly public anti-Semitic statements by prominent figures in Ukraine, a retired general affiliated with the country's intelligence services this week called for the destruction of his country's Jewish community. In the post since deleted from Facebook, Vasily Volk, a general who holds a senior reserve rank with the security service of Ukraine, the local successor to the KGB, wrote that Jews, quote, 
aren't Ukrainians, and I will destroy you, along with Ukrainian oligarch and Jewish lawmaker Vadim Rabinovich. I'm telling you one more time, go to hell, kikes. The Ukrainian people have had it to hear with you, unquote. Ukraine must be governed by Ukrainians, unquote, he wrote. But note, not only was he the Ukrainian intelligence official in charge of the Ukrainian uh, MH17 uh, element of the probe, but that the SBU itself, the Ukrainian intelligence service, was headed up by a guy named Valentin Novobichenko, and there will be links for the relevant articles in the description for the show. He was the head of the SBU under uh, Viktor Yushchenko, married to Katerina Tumachenko, the former deputy liaison officer under Ronald Reagan, and a member of the uh, OUNB front organization in this country, the UCCA. Uh, He then assumed that uh, same post, head of Ukrainian intelligence, after the Maidan coup. He also was greatly assisted by the aforementioned Dmitry Yarosh. He worked closely with Valentin Malavichenko, who organized the Ukrainian intelligence service, the SPU, along the lines of of the OUNB, and he worked alongside of Dmitry Garov from Pravi Sector, uh, Deputy uh, National, uh, Deputy Military Commander or, or uh, uh, Ministry of Defense official in the provisional post Maidan government, now a top advisor to the Commander in Chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. So again, these are the kind of uh, people who are in charge of things, and yet we're not hearing much about that. That the fundamental revision that is taking place under Volodymyr Vyotrovich was intended from the beginning. Note again from the Channel 4 article, the initial actions of the Ukrainian, of the interim government had included forcing making Ukrainian the only official language of the nation and making moves to remove a law which forbids, quote, excusing the crimes of fascism, unquote. And that is indeed being done. Now, uh, we have spoken about uh, the... Azov Battalion, and uh, I think that to understand that as a phenomenon, it is better, it, it is far-reaching uh, influence, it is better to refer to it as the Azov Manifestation. Uh, remember that the driving force behind the Azov Battalion, which gets very little coverage, or if it does, is simply described as a far-right or neo-Nazi participating unit of the Ukrainian National Guard. It is much more than that. The driving force behind it is Roman Zvarich, Z-V-A-R-Y-C-H. You'll see it variously transliterated from the Cyrillic alphabet. He was the personal secretary during the early 1980s to Yaroslav Stetsko of the OUNB. He was the wartime head of the Ukrainian collaborationist government, which liquidated scores of thousands of Jews and Poles uh, in accordance with the Nazi policy of ethnic cleansing. He is the driving force uh, behind Azov. He was the Azov Battalion's 
spokesperson he recruited from it and helped finance it through his NGO. He was also very close to Yaroslav Stetsko, Yaroslav Stetsko's widow. So he is the driving person behind the Azov Battalion. But bear in mind again, as we looked at the, the National Jujima Militia of the Azov Battalion had police powers in 21 different cities along with the Combat 14 Militia of Svoboda. They had the police powers in 21 different cities in Ukraine, as we looked at in our last program. And among the things they did was to basically uh, implement pogroms against the Roma population. Not much coverage of that. Now, note again that the National Regime Militia was the, uh, awarded the position of uh, being election monitors in the election that brought Zelensky to power. From, again, Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Liberty, hardly a Russian uh, outlet. They are the ultra-nationalist National Militia Street Vigilantes with roots in the battle-tested Azov Battalion that emerged to defend Ukraine against Russia-backed separatists, but was also accused of possible war crimes and neo-Nazi sympathies. Yet, despite the controversies surrounding it, the National Militia was granted permission by the Central Election Commission to officially monitor Ukraine's presidential election on March 31st. And again, there was a superficial attempt at walking that back. By a spokesperson, there is no credible evidence that that happened. But the influence of the Azov manifestation is far greater. Uh, they wielded uh, profound influence in the Ministry of the Interior. Vadim Troyan, the deputy commander of Azov, was made deputy minister of the Interior. Previously, he was in charge of the national police and the police in Kiev in particular. And again, links uh, will be in the written description for the uh, for the, this program, for the record 1230. Of Vadim Troyan, former deputy commander of the Azov Battalion, now deputy minister of the interior. The deputy minister of the interior, which controls the national police, is Vadim Troyan, T-O-Y-N, a veteran of Azov and patriot of Ukraine. Today, he is deputy of the department running U.S. trained law enforcement in the entire nation. Earlier this month, Radio Free Europe reported on national police leadership admiring Stefan Bondera, a Nazi collaborator and fascist whose troops participated in the Holocaust on social media. The fact that Ukraine's police is peppered with far-right supporters explains why neo-Nazis operate with impunity on the streets. And uh, again, he was formerly chief of police in Kiev and uh, in control of national police give you an idea of what that translates into in terms of practical political life. Uh, article from Consortium News of April 3rd, 2015, Mysterious Deaths in Ukraine by William Blum. And this will sound uh, very familiar to people who studied the JFK assassination and the cleanup operations that took place in its, in its aftermath. William Blum writes, again, Consortium News, April 3rd, 2015. This is what happens when you have the Azov manifestation and people like Vadim Troyan calling the shots, and I mean that literally, in the uh, law enforcement uh, landscape of Ukraine. 
Meanwhile, in the same time period in Ukraine, outside of the pro-Russian area in the southeast, the following was reported. January 29th. Former chairman of the local government of the Kharkov region, Alexei Koselnik, hanged himself. February 24th. Stanislav Melnik, a member of the opposition party, Party of Regions, shot himself. The next day, February 25th, the mayor of Meripopol, Sergei Walter, hanged himself a few hours before his trial. The day after that, February 26th, Alexander Borguga, B-O-R-B-I-U-G-A, deputy director of the Meripopol police, was found dead in his garage. That same day, Alexander Pekluschenko, former member of the Ukrainian parliament and former mayor of Zaporizhzhia, was found shot to death two days later. Mikhail Chetichov, former member of parliament, member of the opposition party of regions, quote, fell, unquote, from the window of his 17th floor apartment in Kiev. March 14th, the 32-year-old prosecutor in Odessa, Sergei Melnichuk, quote, fell, unquote, to his death from the ninth floor. The party of regions directly accused the Ukrainian government in the deaths of their party members and appealed to the West to react to these events. Quote, we appeal to the European Union, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, and European and international human rights organizations to immediately react to the situation in Ukraine and give a legal assessment of the criminal actions of the Ukrainian government, which cynically murders its political opponents, unquote. That's what happens when the Azov manifestation is calling the shots, and I mean that literally, in the police. Now, I call the Azov manifestation by that term because that what it is, that's what it is. Uh, reviewing very briefly from uh, a, an article that we excerpted in our last program. This is from Covert Action Magazine of May 23rd, 2019. Imagine geographies of Central and Eastern one more time. Imagine geographies of Central and Eastern Europe. The concept of Intermarium by Marlene Lacruel, L-A-R-U-E-L-L-E, and Ellen Rivera, Covert Action Magazine, March 23rd of 2019. Bear in mind the central role in Azov of Roman Svaret, who, by the way, also was the Minister of Justice, the equivalent of the Attorney General, under Viktor Yushchenko and both Yulia Tinoshenko governments, um, and he is a driving force behind Azov. In their intermarian conferences, the ISG conferences, uh, there was a meeting of minds of sorts, and I suspect this is one of the factors that led to the Russian invasion, uh, because it wasn't just uh, the Azov people per se, but they were networking with other elements, including military officials from other countries in Eastern Europe. Uh, from that article, in this context of rehabilitation of interwar heroes, tensions with Russia, and disillusion with Europe over its perceived lack of support against Moscow, the geopolitical concept of intermarium could only prosper. It has found its most active promoters on the far right of the political spectrum among the leadership of the Azov Battalion. And talking about Andrei Bolesky, one of the Svoboda and Azov people, in 2016, 
Andrei Bolevsky created the Intermarian Support Group, or ISG, introducing the concept of potential comrades in arms from the Baltic Black Sea region. The first day of the founding conference was reserved for lectures and discussions by senior representatives of various sympathetic organizations. The second day, the quote, the leaders of youth branches of political parties and nationalist movements of the Baltic Black Sea area. It also included military attaches of diplomatic missions from the key countries in the region, Poland, Hungary, Romania, and Lithuania. One more time. It also included military attaches of diplomatic missions from the key countries in the region, Poland, Hungary, Romania, and Lithuania. Still more. On October 13th of 2018, the ISG organized its third Congress. Besides the Ukrainian hosts, a large share of the foreign speakers from Poland, Lithuania, and Croatia have a paramilitary background, among them advisor to the Polish Defense Minister Jerzy Targalski and retired Brigadier General of the Croatian Armed Forces Bruno Zorica. Among the talking points of Polish military educator Damian Duda were, quote, methods of the preparation of a military reserve in youth organizations, unquote, and the, quote, importance of paramilitary structures within the framework of the defense complex of a modern state, unquote. The point being that the Azov Battalion became, uh, it was becoming, has become a basis, uh, a forum for networking between national security officials from some of these neighboring states. In other words, uh, the Evermarian was a an anti-Russian alliance uh, overlapping the Promethean League put together uh, by Josef Pilsudski of Poland, and it was being recreated and is the epicenter of a growing anti-Russian alliance. And I suspect this has a lot to do with... Uh, the decision of the Russians to intervene. They certainly were not going to get any help from the West. Again, I find it bitterly amusing that Zelensky is being held up as a, as a hero uh, of Ukraine. Would Ukraine be better off having become a neutral country, simply agreeing with the Russian request not to join NATO? Or is what you are seeing there better for Ukraine. And as far, again, as far as violating the sovereignty of the country, uh, the West did that with the Maidan coup. Uh, Professor Kachanovsky has done a brilliant job of that. And who came to power? Svoboda. And uh, again, it's just wild seeing Ashton Kutcher. I stand with Ukraine. Now, I wonder what his wife thinks about that. But uh, as we noted in our discussion of the Svoboda component of the uh, post-Maidan government. One of the things they sought to do, according to Schoenford, making moves to remove a law which forbids, quote, excusing the crimes of fascism, unquote. Well, we are going to take a look at the... Ukrainian Institute of National 
memory. That is headed up by Volodymyr Vyotrovich, a former education secretary for the uh, Ukrainian government, and also a person who has very close relations to the uh, acting Ukrainian education minister in 2016. He also, that is to say, Volodymyr Vyotrovich, also was a key Ukrainian intelligence official as well. He ascended under Viktor Yushchenko and ultimately um, assumed his current position after he fled back to the U.S. when Yanukovych became president. Following a post-Maidan coup, he became director of the Ukrainian Institute of National Memory. This is an explicitly Orwellian institution. I guess one could say that all's well, that's Orwell. And the thesis of this program and the next is that the war itself and the attendant coverage, where we have people like Ashton Kutcherai stand with Ukraine after his wife has been called a dirty Jewess or a kike, depending on the transliteration, by a member of the Svoboda Party. Again, it's just surreal. But the war itself and the attendant coverage and the culture surrounding it is itself, I think, something like a philosopher's stone, an alchemical prism through which uh, the individuals, the culture, the states of, of Europe, the United States, many of its citizens are becoming the Orwellian uh, entity that is being realized in Ukraine through the Ukrainian Institute of National Memory. Very quickly, we're going to begin an article that we will continue in our next program. This, by the way, is from Foreign Policy. That is a very mainstream publication put out by the Washington Post. I confused that briefly with Foreign Affairs, put out by the Council on Foreign Relations. This also is quite mainstream. And the author, Josh Cohen, used to work for the State Department's U.S. AIB, which often serves as a CIA cover. So this certainly is not a pro-Russian outlet. For May 2nd of 2016's issue of Foreign Policy, the historian Whitewashing Ukraine's Past by Josh Cohen. It begins, skipping down. Advocating a nationalist, revisionist history that glorifies the country's move to independence and purges bloody and opportunistic chapters, Volodymyr Vyachovich has attempted to redraft the country's modern history to whitewash Ukrainian nationalist groups' involvement in the Holocaust and mass ethnic cleansing of Poles during World War II, and right now, he's winning. Boy, is he ever. And I would, again, I would submit that the war itself is like a, a philosopher's stone or prism, which is basically uh, performing an alchemical change of uh, the West and most of its institutions and people into the Ukrainian Institute of National Memory. This is a huge and a remarkable phenomenon. Again, how many lies before you belong to the lie? 
a little bit more from the article. In May of 2015, Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko signed a law that mandated the transfer of the country's complete set-up archives from the Soviet organs of repression, unquote, such as the KGB and its decedent, the Security Service of Ukraine, or SPU, to a government organization called the Ukrainian Institute of National Memory. The controversy around it centers on the peddling of World War II history that amplifies Soviet crimes and glorifies Ukrainian nationalist fighters while dismissing the vital part they played in ethnic cleansing of Poles and Jews from 1941 to 1945 after the Nazi invasion of the former Soviet Union. And we will take this up in our next program. And again, I will submit that the war itself and its attendant coverage and culture is like a prism or a philosopher's stone producing an alchemical, political, and ideological transformation, not only of the West, but most of its people and institutions, into the embodiment of the Orwellian Institute of National Memory. But we're all out of time. This concludes For the Record Program number 1230, How Many Lies Before You Belong to the Lie, Part 3, being recorded on March 2nd of the year 2022. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.